Welcome along to the latest edition of the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're here discussing all things NHS and health related with a political twist. I'm Steve Bryan, MP. I represent Winchester in Hampshire. I'm former health minister, currently chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline GP in the Midlands. I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and chair of a body called the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Brilliant. Nice to see you again, Helen. Um, so we we just need to say thank you, actually, to the, to the listeners. Um, we're getting great figures for this pod, which is amazing. So I just want to say thank you to people who are listening and feeding back. And please, I'm told you need to click follow. Follow the show on the on the podcast platforms, which uh, which helps us. So if you would be so kind as to do that. Uh, people seem to be enjoying listening to us, Helen. Yeah, we've been listened to out on dog walks, in cars, uh, whilst we- waiting in outpatient departments and hospitals, I'm reliably informed. So, uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> I'm not quite sure we're trending it, Steve, but uh, oh, our appeal seems to be growing. We're being so listened to yeah. in hospitals. This is this reminds me of my hospital radio days. <laughs> I've never told oh. you about that, have I? I did, you know, I did a programme on hospital radio called Bedtime Brine. Oh, that's so sweet. Except yes. Slightly tragic. Mm. yeah no I used to do a bedtime brine and uh I started doing junior choice then I did bedtime brine and, and we had I can't believe I'm even saying this why am I saying this I'm blushing as saying it we had a feature uh for the last 15 minutes of the show which was called cruising and I used to have a jingle that said cruising with Steve Brine all the way up to midnight Steve I think we should just take a break here and move on with the agenda <laughs> So last week, uh, we discussed assisted dying, didn't we? Assisted suicide after we'd been to Oregon in the US and we talked a bit about digital NHS and about prevention and um, had quite a lot of feedback to that. So we're going to crack on with that assisted dying inquiry. And there seems there's a big piece of work that's just come out this week from the policy exchange about assisted dying. I've had a big piece of work land on my desk from uh, the Joint Lords and Commons Family and Child Protection Group. It's called When End of Life Care Goes Wrong. So it's only a big subject at the moment. And I've written an op-ed for one of the national newspapers. So um, it's a subject at the moment, Ellen, that's going around. It's it's a subject that's eternally important, Steve, and I think it's good that we started the conversation in this way. I was uh, touched by people saying how grateful they were that we were talking about it openly. I think people sometimes feel afraid to talk about death and dying, and I think there's going to be a lot more conversations to come in the next yeah. couple of years as this comes back into public consciousness. So uh, let's keep it going. We, it's the yeah. one certainty we've all got. Let's talk about it. Yeah, death and taxes. Um, so on that, um, yeah. I've literally just come. See, see what we, this is not just thrown together. Literally, I have just come out of the House of Commons chamber where we have had the budget. And uh, Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary, of course, has been delivering his first full budget. And um there's there's a lot in there certainly it went for a good hour there's a lot of stuff about child care which I know you want to talk about um but also from a from a health point of view I mean it was trailed that he was going to make a change to the pension allowance the the annual tax-free allowance that he would lift that up to 1.7 1.8 million um but he's actually just abolished the lifetime allowance altogether now I as a constituency MP have been contacted by a lot of consultants over the years saying what a barrier this is to staying working in the NHS abolishing the lifetime's allowance we think that's a good thing yeah absolutely I have to say my you know, whatsapp lit up with people across the sector and that's not it just 
care, but yeah. that's across all public sector workers. Uh, people who are at the higher end of their careers, whether that's senior nurses, head teachers, senior people in civil service, this is a good thing because completely unintentionally, by, reduce, by putting that cap in on lowering it a few years ago, it caused all sorts of unintended consequences with brilliantly experienced people being advised by their accountants to just get out of the service. Um, and so this is a really positive thing. I'm uh, genuinely delighted. But also the annual tax reallowance increasing is a good thing. So I mean, these yeah. are some of the things that uh, the healthcare senior healthcare professionals have been calling for, but a lot of other people. I mean, special allowances have been made for high court judges a few years ago. And I think this levels things up again in a good way. Yeah. I mean, I can say, you know, having sat there in the chamber and watched it, it was quite a low key budget. You know, there were lots of sniggering when he talked about uh, helping out with swimming pools, public swimming pools, because the prime minister just installed a swimming pool in his home. But, but other than that, you know, it was quite low key. And, it, you know, it was almost it almost lived up to its billing as being boring, which it wanted to be um, because, you know, he didn't he didn't want it to be exciting and rabbits out of the hat. But I the thing that really caught my eye that I wrote down in my book is that the Office of Budget Responsibility said that inflation would go from 10.7 percent at the end of the third quarter last year down to 2.9 percent by the end of 2023. Now, if that's right, you know, to give it a medical analogy, when you've got a high temp, everything about you feels rubbish, doesn't it? The inflation is the economy's temperature. And as long as that's high, everyone feels rubbish and everything costs more, wages are worth less. So if that's right, and those projections are, are, are accurate, and inflation does come down to almost its 2% target by the end of the year, this can be good news. It could. I mean, we're here to be balanced and talk about all this stuff from across the landscape. And actually, I want to pick you up. You made you said there were sniggers in the house when there was talk about swimming pools. Do you know, I was delighted to see swimming pools in there and positive. If we're talking about health prevention and health and well-being in the exactly, wider state, we need our swimming pools just as we need our libraries and our green spaces. So I say yay for swimming pools. Um, also, I was pleased to hear see um, the carbon capture, meant money towards carbon capture and green industry. I mean, clearly, I want us to go much farther, much faster, much bigger with moving to the green energy spaces but I think the more we're talking about the more nitty-gritty bits like carbon capture the better yeah definitely so the childcare stuff was great I, I also chair the all-party group here on childcare and, and early education and you know it was much trailed and it was pretty much as trailed so the early years offer instead of just being for three and four year olds is now going to be for all eligible households over nine months um they're going to raise the ratios from one to four to one to five but that is optional critical because because i can tell you the sector does not like that then yeah. more changes for for parents who are on universal credit and more wraparound care for children, people with school age children so this you know that big. i thought i thought that was that was good the other, the other thing just on a, on a health trip actually was um he gave credit to former health secretary former chancellor sajid javid he put together a 10 million pound fund to fight back against suicide which I thought, you know, it was just very Jeremy to pick something so, so difficult like that. What biggest killer of young men in our country today? Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was great that he even, you know, there are many measures in the Red Book, the budget Red Book, that don't get talked about in the budget speech. But, you know, to, to pull that out and mention it in your speech, I thought was great as Jeremy. I mean, you, you know what an issue that is, Helen. I do. I mean, I, 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 you know, certainly as a GP, we all get touched by the tragedy of suicide because of the ripples of suicide that then go on for decades afterwards. So I'm, I'm yeah. pleased about that. I also want to come back to childcare because this is massively important for the whole of the health and well-being sector, the health and social care sector, sorry, because so many of our employees, particularly those who are on the lower end of pay scales, 
Childcare is a huge inhibitor to women getting back into the workplace at a time when they're ready to do so. So this is a massive stimulus. There was a great piece by uh, Jane Dacre in the Times two weeks ago about this very issue. So I'm sure she'll be delighted. Um, but there are so many of us out there who have been trying to push this issue. And I'm, yeah, great. Let's let's bring it on as fast yeah. as we can. It's the implementation. Nope. What was the other thing before we introduce the excitement of our first guest? Oh, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about? Uh, industrial action that's currently ongoing. So we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime or Wednesday yeah. early afternoon, just after the budget. So we are two thirds, almost two thirds of the way through the three day junior doctor strike. Yeah, so this is industrial action being taken by junior doctors in England only at the present time, although in the devolved nations, conversations are going on about similar issues. Junior doctors are very angry because their pay has fallen back below uh, inflationary growth uh, badly over the last decade, 15 years. Uh, BMA, this is the Doctors' Trades Union, is leading the charge on this. There's some very high demands. And uh, in the first industrial action since 2016, junior doctors actually on strike for full three days. That is massive. They didn't get to three days worth of strike last time uh, when there were a series of uh, steps. And so it's really big. Our colleagues are covering for them. So whether that's GPs in the community or hospital consultants and uh, SAS doctors in hospitals are covering. Um, we're hearing very high percentages of doctors have actually walked out who could so numbers in excess of 90 percent you're never certain how many people will actually take industrial action there's a serious conversation that needs to be had between the junior doctors negotiators and dhsc colleagues to get around the negotiating table i think we all really need that to happen and i hear you i tell you where i am on this there's no question that there's been pay lag over the last what 10, 20 years even, but between um, and junior doctor's pay, nurse's pay, there's no question there's been pay lag. The only question is how and by how much do we catch up? Yeah. I think, you know, in the reasonableness scales, 35% pay rise, which is what the junior doctors are calling for, I, that's that's a difficult ask, um, given the fiscal, given any fiscal situation, let's be honest. Um, but I just, where I can see the nurses settling, I could see that happening imminently. I can see the teachers settling. You know, the, the rail unions are, are almost there. The, the, the border workers, uh, I think they'll get there. I, I'm, I'm struggling to see where the landing strip, I talked about what I thought the landing strip was for the, the, the RCN, the Agenda for Change cohort. I'm struggling to see where the landing strip is for the junior doctors because, you know, I was there at DH with Jeremy when we had the first junior doctor strike, as you say, in 2016. And, you know, it is a... It's a very, very motivated organisation, BMD, BMA Junior Doctors Committee. I'm just struggling to see where the landing strip is. I agree with you. I think starting out with an ask of 35% is hugely difficult and an ask that is only focused on pay restoration. I think when you go into a dispute, when you've got a range of things that you're asking for, then there are a range of solutions and it's more room for negotiation. So I think everybody has been slightly surprised by the tactic but at least it's very overt everyone knows where they stand um of course a negotiation is only such that there isn't a compromise on both sides and clearly that will be necessary i think having the impetus of having the fact that, that the other healthcare professionals if you like all the agenda for change people likely to settle will i think give a very clear starting point for the junior doctors to understand where the scope is for negotiation for me when I go into discussions and negotiations, and I like to do things privately behind closed doors, and I am not a trades unionist, that would be quite clear, very clearly, the Academy of Colleges does not get involved in such matters. But personally, I like to give everybody a dignified exit, a way out where everybody keeps some face. And I think right now, 
I'd be great to hear sounds from both sides that will allow the other side to save face coming out of this. Yeah, well, it's what I mean. That, ultimately, that's what happened in, in 2016, wasn't it? You know, jaw yeah. jaw always beats war war in the end, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Um, so we'll we'll see where that one lands, and um, you know, all all the best uh, to them, and obviously thoughts to to anybody who's had their procedures put back as a result of action, which will have happened. Anyway, um, we have a guest. And uh, Dame Helen Stokes Lampard, if I may say, that we have Dame Kelly Palmer joining us, who is the National Cancer Director. So here I am, a mere MP, sandwiched between two dames on a Wednesday afternoon. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Great to join you both. (laughs) Kelly, I think Steve needs to know how lucky he is to be a Steve between two dames. Quite right. (laughs) So, I mean, we, as you know, Callie, and it's great to have you on, you know, a really good friend of somebody I worked with when I was the, 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 the cancer minister and you, you held this role then. So my goodness, you've had more staying power than me. And, um, you know, you were in front of the select committee last week. I mean, I, I, if I said what gets me out of bed in the morning, it would be prevention and cancer. You know, I, I made no, no secret of the fact that I, I lost both my parents to cancer and my mum my to breast cancer when I was 52, um, just a couple of weeks before I got married. And, uh, and my father died of pancreatic cancer, which is obviously one of the, one of the horrors, um, just a few days, three days after the 2019 general election. So, you know, our experiences shape us, don't they? And I spoke in the house last year about, about my mother and introducing a breast cancer bill. So, you know, I have a have a personal story, as sadly do so many people. Um, Helen, you also have uh, personal stories, but professional angle as to why we wanted Callie to be our first guest. Yeah, I mean, obviously the personal story. You and I, Steve, share the personal pancreatic cancer. It was one of my dear friends, uh, Dame Claire Marks, who died a few months ago of pancreatic cancer. But um, we've all lost people very dear to us, my father-in-law. But no, for me as a GP... Um, you know, cancer and the thought of cancer or the diagnosis or, n- or not missing cancer are in my consulting room every single clinical day. It's one of those always at the back of your mind as a healthcare professional. So I'm delighted that Callie's with us. Callie, it's your job is just enormous. How do you try and weigh up all the cancer challenges that we're facing at a time of hideous backlogs, at a time where cancer has been bundled up into the chronic diseases strategy. Um, and so it seems to some people as if it's less important to the priority scheme. How do you do your job at this current time and how can we do it better? Well, that's a, that's a big question. So I think I've worked in the world of cancer for a long time, as Steve said, And there's been a complete revolution in our understanding of the causes of cancer and better ways to diagnose and treat it. So it's a huge pleasure for me to work on this journey of getting patients in better prevention, faster earlier diagnosis, and then these precision treatments. So whether that's the new immunotherapy regimes, sort of uh, precision rated therapy, robotic surgery, there's such a transformation going on um that it's an absolute joy to be just a small part of that so I work with the the most incredible teams across the country um so that's what gets me out of bed in the morning because it's it's just the prospect of being able to change things for the better um and I think just in, in terms of what what we do and how we phase it I was taught once you know beware of the thousand points of light make sure you prioritize so I've always been very careful about looking at what will have the biggest impact the, the fastest 
and to be able to translate that message for the people working around the country on improving survival. Um, so that's part of my job, my national role, I think, to, to sort of work with clinicians, scientists, and the teams around the country to really translate what we're trying to achieve and to prioritize it. And the example I'll give you, which has been brilliant, are the targeted lung health checks. So very high volume cancer, very poor survival because we're diagnosing people too late. We've rolled out these trucks and services across the country now in areas that, you know, high lung cancer mortality, problems with smoking cessation. We're now issuing 50,000 invitations a month. And we completely reversed the stage at which patients come in, which means we can cure many more people. So that that's, you know, that's a, a massive priority. And, um, you know, it is really a joy to be part of that. Yeah, and that's something, Callie, that my former colleague who you knew, James Brokenshire MP, um, you know, who sadly lost his battle to lung cancer couple of years ago now you know he campaigned so hard when I was cancer minister I remember for those targeted lung checks and they're making a real difference aren't they so thanks for mentioning that can I just uh, raise the issue of of just numbers of people presenting with cancer at the moment because obviously you know there's stories around about getting getting back to the pre-covid levels of um of cancer treatment um I guess one of the big challenges but it's a good it's a good challenge to have in a way is that you've got so many more people coming forward with suspected and I underline that word suspected cancers but but that's a good thing right it's uh, it's a really good thing so we're seeing record levels of demand and that means we are starting to move the dial on earlier diagnosis and therefore improve survival so um, those urgent cancer checks are running at around 120 percent pre-pandemic levels currently treatments also above pre-pandemic levels so we're getting those record numbers coming forward and that's what we want um, and alongside that the, the most exciting thing for me which we've just seen in the last couple of weeks is the latest data on how early people are getting diagnosed and that's been sort of stubbornly flat for a long time and is just ticking up now so we're sort of three or four percent up now on that early diagnosis rate which again will translate into safe lives. Are there particular cancers which are better on the early detection now Callie coming through? Breast cancer traditionally has been one of the better ones because we've had a you know big public um, screen you know population screening program triple assessment so rapid diagnosis it's also got quite um, usually got a sort of obvious sign or symptom the so breast cancer goods lung has been very late stage pancreatic you've you've both mentioned obviously you know that that's quite difficult to pick up early um, so um, there's a there's a there's a real mix of of Usually where there's a sign or symptom, a mole or a lump, it's easy to be, get people coming through faster. But one of the things we're trying to do where there are less obvious symptoms, but there's weight loss, fatigue, um, get people onto these pathways that take them straight to specialist diagnosis that wraps around the patient rather than kind of a long protracted process for people. And I think that will make a big difference. One of my areas of interest, obviously, this podcast is all about prevention. Um, and we can talk about sort of primary prevention, but also early detection falls into that, sort of, you know, picking picking disease up earlier. We've got the three big national uh, screening programs for cancer, cervical screening, breast cancer screening, and the bowel screening program. And uh, we may, I would like to come back to bowel cancer screening in a second. And one of the things that's always interesting to people is why we don't have screening programs for more cancers when there are various degrees of tests. And I spend a lot of my time as a GP explaining uh, to men why we don't have a prostate cancer screening program in the UK currently because we just don't have a test that's reliable and sensitive enough 
Are there any in the pipeline that we should be aware of, Callie? The, the big one is the test we're doing in eight areas of the country on a blood test in an asymptomatic population. So for people who haven't had cancer, um, it's trialing a blood test to see whether that can detect minute changes before there's a there's a, an obvious sign or symptom. And so we're just going through an evaluation of that. But some of the anecdotal evidence is that in some of those hard to detect cancers, we are getting people at an early stage. Is this um, the great that's the grail gallery test yeah okay, i need to declare a conflict of interest here if i've got another conflict because i'm i chair the oversight external clinical committee for the grail project it's fascinating and i'm very excited about it so too. grail this is the grail is the organ for those who don't know grail is the organization that's run by in this country by harpal kumar who yeah. used to run cancer research uk and um they they tell me if i'm getting this wrong Kelly, but from a drawer of blood they think they can detect very early stage cancers that would otherwise not be obvious because they're not symptomatic um, through a through a blood test. I mean, that sounds that sounds like the future. It does, and there's just these minute chemical changes. Really, um, and what's yeah? So, and while there has to be a proper evaluation, the plan is if it passes certain milestones, that will then roll this test out to a million people from April twenty four. So. We're, again, we're on a journey with it, but it's it's looking really exciting. It's looking promising, um, and it's particularly for those cancers where there are less obvious signs of symptoms. So it's harder to detect early. Callie, what's the thing that you know? What keeps you awake at night on on your job? I mean, it is such a big job, isn't it? But what's the sort of what's the worry? What's on the worry list? I think my, my big worry was actually during the pandemic when people stopped coming forward. So we've got, a, as you said at the top of the call, we've got a bit of a backlog where we're, you know, we're making massive progress. But so it's very important that people come forward. Um, so we, we saw a big drop at the beginning of the pandemic. We've recovered that but we've, and we're just working through through the backlog now. Um, so but, but it's trying to make sure we give people confidence in coming forward um because it is variable people are sometimes scared so we've done a fear campaign recently to say you know it probably isn't cancer but please come and get checked because by and large for most cancers the earlier we can spot it the better the outcome and you know the, the higher the level of complete cure um so my big worry is just how do we carry on encouraging people to come forward can uh, i make a suggestion Kelly? yeah um, some testing. So, you know, we've got the bowel cancer screening program that the, the, the fit testing. So, Steve, just so that you're aware, so, you know, there's the national bowel cancer screening program. Mm. Uh, people are 60 to 74 years old, and now they're rolling it out from the 50 to 59s as well. And essentially, the tests before and now involved you catching a sample of your poo. And people are really squeamish about body parts and poo in the same way cervical screening people are quite squeamish about and I do think we can have a demystify how to catch a poo and not get your hands dirty campaign. I really do. Because I've I've looked at the online videos and there's this That's sort a of catchphrase if ever I heard one. Catch a sample. Do you know, <laughs> I've got really top tips for how to catch samples without getting unhygienic and messy. And it's, it's you get a cheap carrier bag and you put it in the toilet and you use the seat of the toilet to pin the handles of the bag and you turn your toilet into a potty and you go and you don't get your fingers dirty and you flush it away afterwards, throw the bag in the bin or put it for recycling. Do not put the bag down the toilet. And it's not as nasty and sticky and ucky as people think. And, do you know, we need to talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah well, you know, it could save your life. You know, it could save your life. So find a way to do it, you know. 
Well, I mean, poor Debs, you know, from from the, the big cancer campaign who who lost her lost yeah. her life to it. You know, she was so she was so brave once she in talking about, you know, check your poo, guys and girls, just check your poo. And it sounds like Helen's thought way too much about this and how to and a lot fit, of time fit up the toilet, no pun intended. But and um my grandfather was a plumber, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Callie, what does you know, so if the future on detection you know, we talked about subject to evaluation, it going well. I mean, where's the future on treatment? I mean, is it is it drugs? Is it radiotherapy? Is it a combination of both? Is it proton beam? Is it precision medicine? What is the, what's that side of your work? Yeah, so the, the, the big advances are around precision in every single type of cancer treatment. And it, again, it's been a complete transformation in, in my time involved in the world of cancer so you know robotic surgery where you can do something that's so fine because you've got you've got a sort of about 10 10 arms on this robot so you can actually peel a peel a grape with exquisite precision that shows you how brilliant a robot can be you obviously need a a skilled surgeon behind the robots but people can do the most incredible things that mean less invasive for patients faster and easier faster recovery and the same goes for other types of treatment so um, some of my colleagues are about to uh, announce the results of a trial in radiotherapy, which means that we can deliver deep doses and reduce the number of doses from 20 to 5 for people with prostate cancer, for example. And again, it's precision radiotherapy, better for patients, better outcome, just through this much more precise, some of its technology, some of its drugs, some of its things like the, the robots for surgery. Um, and um, same with drugs and delivery mechanisms for drugs. There's so much more knowledge about how to um, diagnose all the diseases that make up cancer, because it's not one thing, and then be really precise. We, you know, we have sort of genomic capability we, we didn't have five, 10 years ago, really precise with that person's cancer, that person's response to treatment, and then adapting their therapy in a really precise way so they get the best possible outcome. And again, as I said earlier, it's just a joy to be part of that and to be, you know, I, I, I help people make that happen. I can't do it myself, um, but it's a joy working with clinical and scientific teams who can do it. Callie, can I just come in on that? Because I love hearing with this, that you talk about that ultra-personalization of care, aren't you? I mean, I one of my other hats, again, another conflict, I guess, is that I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer. Plenty of other amazing cancer charities are available. But what we talk about there is about this personalization. And as a GP, what we talk about is personalization. And that is tailoring it all around the individual as opposed to blanket approaches. And whilst we need our clinical pathways and our routes to care, we also need to be able to tailor it, nuance it for the individual. And it's a, it's a brilliant balance. And that's what I'm loving about the direction of travel that you've just described, is that it is truly personalized. The next part for me is how we tailor and personalize the life beyond the acute phase of cancer and cancer treatment, because, you know, the majority of people live beyond their acute phase of their cancer. They live for many years long beyond. And, you know, more people die having had a cancer than of a cancer. Any thoughts about that or how that fits in with your work? Yeah, so the, the whole um, concept of fantastic cancer care is about support for precision diagnosis and treatment, but then support beyond that, because we're going to have a growing cohort of people, as you say, Helen, living with cancer. You know, we are either sort of, for the most part, curing or, or prolonging life over, you know, really long periods of time compared with what was possible even sort of three or four years ago. So there's huge advance. And what we're trying to do is make sure it's very easy for people to get their, their checks regularly, 
to seek specialist advice if they're worried about anything, and to support this increasing cohort of people who have gone beyond cancer. So, as you know, Macmillan's slogan is sort of living well beyond cancer, and I'm working with them. So Macmillan, Cancer Research UK, some of the, the rarer cancer charities, they work with me on the National Cancer Board to try and make sure we're taking account of that. But a complete journey, if you like, and that complete experience for people. So it's not just Presumably, Kelly, that's, that's that's more important than ever for the not the sort of non-solid tumour cancer, so blood cancers, where people sort of live on, it's called watch and wait, isn't it, for many, many years. Um, that, you know, you, you're not just... You don't just survive cancer, do you? And then struggle through you. People live beyond and they must live normal and live well. Absolutely right. And as I say, the connection back to the conversation we just had about precision is that most people don't have to live with the kind of impacts they previously had from you know these big heavyweight treatments um, because it's much more precise, much better output. And then it's supporting people to live well and come back straight into uh, specialist advice as and when they need it rather than you know, yeah. having 16 follow-up appointments over a period of years, which no. So, really so look, before we um before we take some questions and wrap up, um, I just wanted to ask you about the hard to reach Cali and you know, men in particular. I remember a, a GP telling me once that um a guy had come in for a couple of things and as they had the can I just moment at the door, which I think uh, Helen will recognize uh with some of her male patients who said, you know, can I just mention that I do seem to be getting up to go for a wee in the night quite a lot to get back in here. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, who's, who's the hard to reach? It can't just be men, but I mean, who's the hard to reach groups that worry you, you as a GP, Helen, and you as cancer director, Kelly? Shall I go first? Yeah. You know, so, so the hard to reach for me. So there are the people who struggle just to pick up the phone or come into the surgery. So the, whether that's with neurodisabilities, hearing loss, people who, who struggle with our mechanisms to book an appointment people who haven't got the mental health capacity to be able to cope with it. But we've also got specific communities, you know, whether it's traveler communities who have very low rates of registration with GPs. We've got the uh, oh, yeah, people yeah. who are homeless and don't have fixed addresses, uh, people in prisons. You know, there are a lot of groups who are really, um, who the NHS is not well set up for. The NHS doesn't serve them well. So you've mentioned the massive group, which is a lot of people, particularly otherwise well men, who really struggle with it. I mean, for any health care. I mean, if I heard a pound for every time um, a male patient comes in with the mantra, my girlfriend, friend, sister, mother booked the appointment for me. Oh, and yeah. if you haven't got that caring other person in your life, how are you going to get through the door? And my line is always... I can do many things, but I'm not telepathic. Yeah, well, that, that's a surprise to me, but um, I thought you were. But I mean, what, what do you think, Callie? Who's the hard to group reach? Yeah, I, well, we've, as you know, Steve, we've had um, we've had we've done various experiments with groups that we know won't come forward. So we had um, we had our man van for prostate cancer checks that went. Yes, this man van. I like this. Yeah, so it went around building sites because people tend to not want to take time off to go and see their GP if they're worried. So we sort of took the service out to say, look, come and have a quick check in your lunch break and, um, you know, we'll we'll speed you on to the right, right professional if you need it. Um, we had a couple of, um, we know prostate cancer is a higher instance in the black community. So we had a couple of pastors from the Croydon area who were really leading the charge and getting their church communities to come forward. So they came to the man van and we picked up, um, we picked up a number of people who needed, needed treatment. Um, so we've done, and then last week I went to Harringay to launch um, 
our liver trucks, and that's targeting homeless shelters, alcohol addiction centers, um, places where we think um, people won't come forward because they don't have people to support them, and they've probably got a much higher instance of um, you know, the rate of de developing liver disease or cirrhosis of the liver. So we've got a fleet of liver trucks now, Steve, as well as the man van. <laughs> My goodness, man vans and liver trucks. Now, okay, Kelly's look. Me, Steve, one, two quick last things. Kelly's reminded me, obviously different ethnic groups have different, there are big cultural barriers in certain groups and loads of work is going on with that. But you just reminded me, a trans community, people who have transitioned or people who are living in a different gender from that which they were born, um, depending on what the NHS is, has you coded as on your NHS record will depend on what screening you're called for. Of course, your NHS yeah. screening doesn't know if you've got a cervix or not. It just knows if you're coded as female or male. And so the trans community, sometimes we struggle with getting them to the right sort of screening, or sometimes people feel very inhibited coming forward. If they're living life as a woman, but actually were born male, there are different issues there. And they may miss out on appropriate tests and screening. So again, we need to have those conversations and make our environments friendly for and approachable for everybody to come forward and not feel fearful of any judgment or discrimination. It's so fascinating. I mean, there's just so many charities that I've interacted with over the years who work in, in the area of detection and prevention and awareness. I mean, you know, Copper Feel, the brilliantly named breast cancer charity. Um, I, I met an organization the other day who got in touch with me called Check Your Cockerel uh, about uh, male penile cancer, which is, I guess, you know, vanishingly rare. I'm but but when it hits, boy, does it hit. Yeah. Anyway, listen, um, I'm just going to press this button and then uh, we're going to have two dames in the pod surgery. Now, you're blown away by our sound effect, Kelly. I can see that. Um, but listen, a couple, a couple of people have been in touch with things for us to suggest before we wrap up. So Amanda Galley, who's a dental therapist, the past president of the British Association of Dental Therapists, uh, was asking us, also at the University of Lincoln, was asking us to touch on the whole issue, Kelly, of oral health and cancer. What thoughts? I think detecting cancer early and well is really a, a sort of whole community job, quite honestly. So that anything we can do to encourage people in through um, through oral health checks um, uh, into the sort of early detection space is a good thing. So I think this is no longer something that happens in hospital environments. I think it happens across across the whole pathway, including in, for example, community pharmacies where you know, community, we're, tra we're training community pharmacists to identify people who might need to come forward. So I think, I think it takes the whole community to look at ways in which we can fast track people to the right specialist. And I think, um, you know, I, I, it's really making sure we sort of continue our campaigning to get people to come in through different routes, quite honestly. I think that's really important. With oral cancers, another thing that's going to be interesting over the coming years is the impact of the HPV vaccine. So human papillomavirus is linked with oral cancers as well as many of the epithelial cancers. And so it will be interesting to see if we if there's a significant uh, positive trend for that, but easily underestimated. Classic one for me is to argue for better investment in our dental services. You know, we know what a dreadful state general dental services are in currently. Um, we talked last week about children's oral health, but actually adults' oral health, dentists frequently are picking these things up incidentally. And if people aren't having their routine checks, that's going to be missed as well. Yeah, interesting. Right. Next patient, Helen, what have you got? Um, Amy Melody. Now, I think she's actually from Target Ovarian Cancer, another of the disease-specific cancer charities, has asked us about ovarian cancer screening. And I think there is no national ovarian cancer screening programme, Callie. Um, there are good reasons for that. Certainly as a GP, when people come forward with worrying symptoms, 
Um, I've got a pretty low threshold for referring people because it is one of those really, it's quite a scary cancer as a GP because it is, it is frequently presents late. I was involved in research 15 years ago where I interviewed a load of doctors who'd had patients with ovarian cancer. And we established at that point that symptoms like persistent bloating and feeling full early were actually red flag symptoms for ovarian cancer. Any news in this space or any thoughts how we can do better? Yeah, I, well, I think we need to continue to innovate. So there's nothing specific to say today, but I, I agree with you. It's something that we need to look at because it's one of those late detection problems. So there's something about public campaigns. There's something about you know the, the ongoing development of targeted screening programs in the NHS. Um, so we're again, you know, I said it before, but we're on a bit of a journey with um, with screening and early pickup. So um, yeah, we'll we'll continue to look at what's possible. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's brilliant. We talked a bit about lung checks earlier, didn't we? And um, somebody um, somebody asked us to touch on smoking, which obviously you know is connected to to lung cancer primarily. Um, I mean, we just got to, you know, it's one of those low hanging fruit, really, isn't it? You know, I've always been in favour of a polluter pays levy on the tobacco firms, and uh, you know, to put that into smoking cessation services. And I, and I wouldn't expect Kelly to to comment on that or. But, you know, as a politician, I can say that. Um, but I voted that way in, in the House in the past. But I mean, you know, we still in certain communities, let's say, I mean, you know, smoking rates are much higher in the northwest of England than they are in Winchester, where I represent. But, you know, Callie, you, we've got to drive down these smoking rates, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. And very importantly, in the lung trucks and the, the, these targeted checks that we're rolling out across the country, we have smoking cessation services to try and support people. So it's not just a a low dose scan and a fast track in if you need it it's actually smoking cessation support and help you know so it's just frustrating because it's a you know it's a major risk to people and um, so we need to do all we can to you know target these lung services and move them into a national screening program in the short to medium term so you know that's the plan that's the trajectory to make sure we can um, improve the way we pick up lung cancer but also keep going with smoking cessation support I'm really glad to hear you mention that the uh, the lung checks are actually involved are doing that as well, Callie, because I hadn't appreciated that. Because as a GP, it's one of my frustrations is that frequently we've had some brilliant smoking cessation services in the NHS, and then the funding got whittled away, and so they dropped. And I can't believe that 50 years on from you know really strong uh, evidence about the damage and the harms of smoking that we're in such a bad position uh, that we still are. And Steve. If we need to lobby for polluter pays taxes, absolutely, as healthcare professionals, we should be behind that. This is an absolute no-brainer to me. Um, and I think the harms it does, you know, on a daily basis, it's not just the cancer, I know that's what we're talking about today, but chronic CBD airways, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's awful. I mean, end-of-life care, one of the challenges we have for end-of-life care is that it's focused a lot around cancer, end-of-life care, but actually deaths from heart failure and COPD and need all the help from our palliative care services too. Perhaps that's a conversation for another day, Steve. Yeah. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. There, There is obviously lots of challenges. There's lots of people waiting and the pandemic's had a huge impact, but I always think that we are very lucky in this country and I was in the states a couple of weeks ago and you know they don't have an integrated healthcare system you know there's lots of firewalls and barriers between primary care and secondary care and consultants and you know we do have that in this country and so we have I think we have great things going for us we have great research some of the best in the world don't we and uh, look at the COVID vaccine and what we achieved and I think we you know we can continue to to lead the world in cancer and you know i Thank you for all you're doing on it, Kelly. And uh, I hope you you get up with a spring in your step every day. Thanks very much, Stephen. Helen, it's a pleasure to join you today. Thanks for inviting me.
Thanks, Callie. Keep up the brilliant work. And thanks, Steve. Steve, what are we going to be up to next week? Well, um, let's let the listeners decide. There's so many things for us to talk about, isn't there? Um, I think we're going to talk at some point um, on one of the future episodes about the whole child obesity um and you know eating well we, we yeah. sort of touched on that in previous episodes so we'd really like to, to touch on that we've got some some interesting ideas of people who might join us for that discussion um and no doubt you have a, a a thousand ideas that come through your door every day every day looking forward to hearing what listeners want i'll speak to you soon okay if you want to give feedback you can find us uh, prevention is the new cure on social media you can email podcast at stevebryan.com with your feedback and your ideas please follow the show on uh, all the podcast platforms and until next time thanks for joining us thanks again to cali god bless mm-hmm.